Let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 15. And while we're doing that, let me just allay any guilt that any of you might have if you overslept this morning or totally forgot about things. I remembered last night around dinner time, told Laura, and um, then totally forgot about it, and woke up an hour late this morning, and my schedule was just way off, and um, if Laura hadn't reminded me, I would be making a cameo appearance right about now. So anyway, I hope, uh, hope that relieves any who uh, were in a similar boat. I want to look at the uh, parable of the prodigal son once again uh, this morning, Luke 15, and specifically I want to speak this morning about praying for prodigals, keeping with our theme of prayer, how do we, how do we effectively pray for the prodigals in our lives that we're, that we're praying for? But as a way to get started, let's read this parable, starting in verse 11. No, starting in verse, yeah, yeah, verse 11. He said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, and he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up, and he came to his father, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead, and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be merry. Now his older brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry, and he was not willing to go in. So his father came out and began entreating him. But the older son answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, 
and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, or came, who had, has devoured your wealth with harlots, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Father, we ask for a deep time in your word this morning. I pray that something that is said would minister to every heart here. Uh, We pray, Lord, that it would be your Holy Spirit that is speaking through your word and through me. And we ask that our hearts would be uh, attuned to the voice of your Holy Spirit. Pray that what's uh, not of you would be just like chaff in the wind, uh, but that which is of you, Lord, would remain and bear fruit. We give you all the glory and all the praise for saving us and for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness. We bless you. and We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the word prodigal means to drive away. It means to squander, be wasteful, one who spends lavishly and frivolously. And as I read and study this parable, it has to be one of the greatest stories, if not the greatest stories of all time. How could any human mind make up or or create such a story? I just can't imagine it. Obviously, uh, it was not just an ordinary human mind who came up with this story. It was the Son of God himself. But let me ask you this morning, which of these three characters in the story do you identify with? Do you identify with the prodigal son? Either currently you are a prodigal son, or in the past you were a prodigal son and you've made your way home and made peace with God and he has lavished his grace upon you. Maybe you are the older brother. You've served the Lord for a lot of years and you find this hardness in your heart that you don't like, but nevertheless... You have to admit, if you're honest, that it crops up once in a while, and you feel angry and cold and hard and unwilling to come into the party. Or maybe you have a child or a friend or a parent or a loved one who has walked away from the Lord, and you find yourself in the position of the Father, where you're grieving and you're longing, it's a sore that won't heal, and uh, you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying. I reviewed about a hundred sermons on this parable, uh, not in full, but, you know, just reading summaries, about three or four books, and um, was interested to see that most of the sermons or, or thoughts about this parable, of course, center on the Father and His love, and I think that's as it should be. Uh, the next group, I think, focuses on the prodigal, and the next group on the uh, elder brother. But what I was particularly looking for were 
keys or messages pointing at how to pray for prodigals, because that, that was my concern. And there was very little about how to pray for prodigals, specifically except with the exception of a man named Jeff Lucas, who has written a couple of books, uh, one of which I'll quote from today. The first is, Will Your Prodigal Come Home? It's an excellent book, especially, I think, if you're a parent and you have a prodigal child. Um, Also, uh, he wrote a book more recently, I believe, called uh, Creating a Prodigal-Friendly Church. And uh, just exhorting the church to not be like that elder brother whose heart is hardened, but to have a soft heart and, and a welcoming heart and be ready to throw that party when a prodigal comes home. So my, my purpose this morning is to look at some specific ways to pray for prodigals that God has shown me. This is not a formula. You know that we don't believe in formulas here. Um, and it's not, it may not particularly be an emotional message. My goal is not to, um, to be so much in that realm as to be uh, thinking with you from the Word of God. How are we exhorted? What, what could be the most effective ways to pray for prodigals? Let me list them for you briefly. Um, and don't feel that you have to get them all down perfectly. I've got Uh, sort of some, I've got my points um, here on this page and the scriptures that go along with them. I'm sorry I didn't get a PowerPoint together, but feel free to grab one of those now or or after the service. But um, these are the ways that I feel God has spoken to me to pray for my prodigals. The first is to pray for God's prevenient grace, and I'll explain that term in a little bit. The second is to pray for a bankruptcy of soul to come upon the prodigal. The third is to pray for the gift of repentance. The fourth is to pray for an extreme longing for God. The fifth is to pray for open doors. The sixth, for the fear of the Lord. And finally, for us to pray, like Jeff Lucas exhorts, to pray for a prodigal-friendly heart. So let's take a look at each one of these. Um, The first is to pray for God's prevenient grace. Um, Yeah, Deanna, thank you for coming and getting that. Feel free to come, you guys. It's okay if we move in the building. It's really all right uh, while I'm talking and any time. Yeah, it's really okay. These are the prodigals that are coming. (laughs) Yeah, they're ready for, yeah, some want the party. Okay, while they're, while they're here, um, let's, let's look at number one, pray for God's prevenient grace. Now, This is the belief that it takes God's purposeful and specific drawing of an individual. It takes his special grace for someone to even have that first inkling that they want to pursue God or look for God. This is before, even before a person makes a decision 
to be saved. It's based on verses like John 6.44. I'll read that to you. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Matthew 6.44, once again, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's also in the field of theology a a concept called common grace, not provenient grace, but common grace. And this is the idea that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. In other words, God does not withhold his blessings from um, the unsaved or wicked or evil men, that the, the grace and the blessing of God falls in general on all of mankind. And yet there is this belief that this doctrine that provenient grace is a reality that even to see Jesus for who he really is takes a work of God. It takes his grace to be able to to behold him in reality. Earlier in the same chapter, John 6, we read this verse um, that everyone, let's see, Um, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. So even to really behold him, to have the veil removed so you can see Christ for who he is, um, takes this special act of grace. I think of the verse Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 2, chapter 1, that says, Um, that we are dead, we are dead, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It doesn't say we were sick. It says that we were dead. And so we need that quickening power, that provenient grace. Let me read um, what the United Methodist Book of Discipline says about provenient grace. It says it's the divine love that surrounds all humanity and precedes any and all of our conscious impulses. This grace prompts our first wish to please God. Isn't that beautiful? This grace prompts our first wish to please God, our first glimmer of understanding concerning God's will, and our first slight transient conviction of having sinned against God. Grace, God's grace also awakens in us an earnest longing for deliverance from sin and death and moves us towards repentance and faith. I just want to unequivocally say I believe in this doctrine. I believe that it does take God's special grace to, to draw an individual uh, to, to himself. Um, it's not just our... It's too simple uh, to think that it's just our free will. And besides that, I want to give God the glory for all of my salvation. How many would say a hearty amen to that? I want to give him all the glory for rescuing me. We also have verses in the Bible like, um, oh, Ephesians 1.4. Let's look at that quickly. Or I can, actually, I can just read that to you. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us, it says. 
And in John 15, 16, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So I believe in this choosing act of God, this prevenient grace that draws him to us. So as we think of our prodigals, it just, it's a good place to start, to, to pray for God's drawing, God's prevenient grace, without which um, that prodigal will never return home. Number two, I want to pray, I've been led to pray for a bankruptcy of soul in those that I'm praying for. When did the prodigal son um, begin to experience um, a desire to return home? Well, in verse 14, we read this. It says, when he had spent everything. What do we call that in our culture? When you're out of money, absolutely out of money, and you begin to owe people. Bankruptcy. Yeah, it was, he, he, he experienced financial bankruptcy. But as I pray uh, for mine, I'm praying for a bankruptcy of soul. Because I remember, and, and um, if you can relate to this, I'd like you to raise your hand just so others can identify as well. I remember in the months preceding my surrender to Christ, the wrestling within my heart and looking within myself and seeing, uh, you know, seeing the darkness, seeing the evil, seeing the hypocrisy, seeing the lust, you know, just seeing the emptiness and the meaninglessness of my life. How many of you can relate to that? Before you surrendered to Christ, to apprehend is so necessary even those terrible dreams, tormenting dreams, so necessary to apprehend the meaninglessness and the emptiness of life without God. I've mentioned before uh, the French philosopher and existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, who um, saw this meaninglessness of his own life, and he wrote an autobiography. Do any of you remember what the name of it was? Nausea, yeah. How would you like to write an autobiography of your life and call it nausea? Uh, that's probably not far off. I remember when Terry was preaching and he said, yeah, if you look at yourself, of course you're going to get depressed, you know. Uh, so he wrote nausea, but listen to the titles of other of his works in subsequent years. The next one he wrote was called The Flies. Next one was being and nothingness. The next one was no exit. And then he wrote a play called Dirty Hands. Just the titles themselves speak of that emptiness, that meaninglessness apart from God. We have a book in our Bible that really hammers this theme home. What, what would you guys say? Ecclesiastes. That's, that's the book that really hammers this idea of meaninglessness without God. 
Solomon the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. He was considered the wisest, richest, most influential king in Israel's history, and he looks at life without God. And the first verse says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Later, he says in verse 14, it's a striving after wind. And as you remember, he he begins to explore various uh, categories of, of pursuit of pleasure and so on. My Bible notes say it quite well, so I'd like to uh, read a, a paragraph from it. Power, popularity, prestige, pleasure, nothing can fill the God-shaped void in man's life but God himself. But once seen from God's perspective, life takes on meaning and purpose causing Solomon to exclaim, eat, drink, rejoice, do good, live joyfully, fear God, keep his commandments. Skepticism and despair melt away when life is viewed as a daily gift from God. I was uh, kind of feeling the drudgery of life the last couple weeks and turned to this book and, and there were there were several lines that I had circled from a previous study about, um, about the importance of seeing your labor as valuable to God. Seeing what you do as, as valuable to God is a spiritual discipline to be cultivated. Because we can all compare our work to somebody else's, can't we? And get discouraged pretty quickly about the greatness of others and that guy's only 30, and look what he's done, and, you know, and so forth. So to see our life and our work as valuable. I want the prodigals that I'm praying for to feel on a deep level the meaninglessness of life apart from God, to have that experience and to find that deep sorrow that leads to repentance. That brings us to the third thing that I feel is important to pray, and that's for the gift of repentance. There's a subtle thread in Scripture that just like prevenient grace is a gift, that repentance is also a gift. And I'd like to look at a few verses just to fortify that point. Acts 5.31 is the first one. Acts 5, verse 31. It says, and when they had prayed... Uh, no, sorry, Acts 5.31. This is where um, the apostles are defending themselves in front of the high priest after being arrested and then supernaturally released by God. And they're telling Peter and the apostles that we told you not to preach anymore uh, in this name. And, and this is their, part of their response. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to what? To grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now turn over to 11, Acts 11, verse 18. This is where... um, 
Peter is talking to the uh, Christians in um, Jerusalem about how how God has extended the gospel to the Gentiles. And at the conclusion of that talk, uh, they say in verse 18, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted, there's that phrase again, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Because those two verses are dealing with large groups of people, they're dealing with Israel first, that God granted to Israel the gift of repentance, and then to the Gentiles, uh, somebody could, could argue that, well, that's common grace. That's really not prevenient grace. That's really not extended to an individual. This is part of the unfolding of the gospel uh, at the initiation of the church. But let's look at 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And we'll see here a passage where it begins to look individual as well, that the gift of repentance needs to be given to individuals as well. Starting in verse 24 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God, and here it is again, may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil and having been held captive by him to do his will. We also read about Lydia in Acts 16, verse 24 or 14, that she was a worshiper of God who was listening to Paul and the Lord, it says, opened her heart to respond to the gospel. And so we see that from these verses, this thread of how even um, turning to the Lord, that that act of repentance requires a gift or a granting from the Lord himself. To grant is the Greek word didomai. It just simply means to give or to cast or to grant or to supply uh, what is needed. Now let's go back to our parable Luke 15, and look at the phrase that is used to describe the gift of repentance in the prodigal's life. It's in verse 17. It's the very first phrase. It says, but when he, what? Came to his senses. And do you remember that in the Second Timothy passage we just read, it said the same thing. Perhaps God may grant that they will come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So you see, we're engaged when we're praying for prodigals, we're engaged in a spiritual battle, aren't we? It's not, it's not just up to their will and circumstances, but we're engaged in a spiritual battle. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we need to also pray for the gift of repentance for the prodigals that we're praying for. Amen? 
that this is, this is key, for we fight not against flesh and blood. The fourth um, area that I feel God has shown me to pray for, the prodigals that I'm praying for, is to have well up in their heart that deep longing for the living God. Don't you crave that for them? The deep longing for the living God. In uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes powerfully about our, our longing for God. He says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy, an echo, or an image. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. What a tremendous quote. Instead of the far country, what, what Lewis highlights is the true country, the other country to which we belong. One quote that I've used in several sermons of his is from The Weight of Glory and other addresses, and uh, it's the one about mud pies in the slums. In case you don't remember it, let me read it. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what, it's, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Some of you have been here for years. You might remember Don Richardson, and I believe it was he who wrote the book uh, Eternity in Their Hearts. And that's from a verse in Ecclesiastes that says God has placed eternity in our hearts. He's placed uh, that longing for him and for the other country in our hearts. Nobody has demonstrated that perhaps better than David in the book of Psalms how he cries out for God. Even though he knows God, he says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, 
for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? One of the most wonderful quotes um, that I've ever heard was from uh, St. Augustine, where he said, You have created us for yourself, and our heart cannot be stilled until it finds its rest in you. Beautiful quote, so true. And so we need to pray for the longing for God in our prodigals as well as in ourselves. Deeper and deeper longing for God. The fifth um, prayer that I feel God has led me to is to pray for open doors. And it's interesting that Reza Safa mentioned this a couple weeks ago, to pray for open doors. Let's look at Colossians 4, uh, verses 2 through 6. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, it says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have been imprisoned. Let's stop there. Uh, Sarah, I think that's what God did for you in that petition. Lord, give me something specific. Um, I don't want to just kind of make my own door. (laughs) I want to ask you for a doorway in. And how beautiful that you were obedient uh, when the Lord gave it. Sometimes when we've been praying and talking to prodigals for years, um, we, we go into a season of silence and just prayer. How many, how many would say with a prodigal in your life you've experienced that or you're in that place where you feel like to say any more, you're just going to drive them further from, from yourself and from the Lord. But in the midst of that silence, we can pray for open doors, can't we? And by that, I tend to think of, of, um, of creative opportunities that the Holy Spirit would bring about. I think of um, disentangling prayers that would disentangle ungodly and unhealthy friendships from that one we love, and that their hands would be joined to um, some godly and healthy influences. I saw the power of these kinds of prayers years ago when I was praying for my grandparents who were in their 90s in a nursing home in Illinois, um, praying for them and um, finding out that, and my, my grandmother at that time had uh, um, dementia, and so I was hearing that she would be out of her head at times, uh, screaming out in terror, and a lot of it was religious kind of, of language and, and fears. Um, but I also found out that she had a beautiful African-American woman assigned to her who was very godly, and would pray for her and read the word to her and calm her in those moments. I don't know if she received the Lord before she died, but it's my prayer, of course, that this woman uh, who was sent there to serve her uh, led her to the Lord and brought real peace to her. Also, my granddad, Volweiler, very scientific guy, 
he's in the who's who of the scientific world, and in his 90s, he's doing push-ups, you know, um, uh, and I heard that in his, in his last months and weeks that his Presbyterian minister would make regular, regular visits to him, and so even though he may have thought about the Lord and his commitment to the Lord in very different terms than I do, again, my prayer is that somehow he, he gave his life to Christ and connected, uh, and this Presbyterian minister helped him. So I think these are, are, are very powerful prayers. As we pray for open doors, uh, I feel the Lord also drawing me personally to a new boldness, and he may do that with you as well. Um, rather than leave you in that place of silence, he may um, say, okay, now it's time for you to be very bold. And uh, you might find new creative ideas bubbling up in your spirit, an article or a book or a way to approach that prodigal that you haven't thought of before. So let's add to our list praying for open doors as we pray for our prodigals. Number six is uh, praying that the fear of the Lord would come upon them. It can't be overemphasized that we also pray for the fear of the Lord to come upon our loved ones who need God. Not just to terrify them, but as a means to greater revelation and salvation. I've listed on that sheet about seven verses from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life. The fear of the Lord keeps one away from evil. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And in the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence. Again, in Ecclesiastes, that the book whose theme is that we must make a choice or we have only a choice between emptiness and fearing God. It says, in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. So we can't water down or get away from the fear of the Lord because a fearsome judgment is coming to those who disbelieve. Hebrews 10.27 says it this way, a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. One... Uh, if, if I were to ask you what is the favorite verse in the Bible or most often quoted verse in the Bible, I know you would say John 3.16. But have you noticed that at the end of that chapter, that, that very chapter that highlights the love of God, the last verse says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. That's a frightening verse. That the wrath of God abides on those who refuse to believe. And so the fear of the Lord gives our prayers for our prodigals fervency 
and urgency, our prayers become fearsome in and of themselves. The last prayer is to pray with a prodigal, friendly heart. And I don't know about you, but it's, there are times where I drop into an elder brother mentality. Um, after working at the church here for 20 years and having many, many, many homeless people come in the doors, street folks, um, I began to, in my cynicism, my elder brother mentality, I began to think about their approaches and the contracts that they try to uh, sort of unconsciously uh, create with, with me. Um, I call one the desperation. Uh, my desperation will compel you to give to me contract. Um, another is my belligerence will compel you. In other words, if I, if I don't comply with their request, they, they get angry and maybe start cursing or something. Um, the one that kind of bugs me the most, though, is the one who the contract of my sunshiny personality and past accomplishments uh, will compel you to give to me. Let me tell you about one of these that went down. It was a couple weeks ago. No, I'm sorry, a couple years ago. Sitting out on one of the benches in the lobby here, and, and Debbie said, there's a, there's a man out here who needs to talk. So I go out, and just a friendly guy uh, talking about, you know, his past accomplishments and, and um, you know, how he was like a country western piano player. He played with all the big names and goes on and on for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, knee-slapping time, you know, and outwardly I'm laughing and I'm listening, but, but inwardly, I'm sad to say, I was like, like the westerns say, a, a grizzly bear with a sore tooth. You know, I was just thinking, okay, you're going to regale me with stories and then at the end, you're going to ask me for money, and that's the contract. You've entertained me, and, and now it's time for me to pay you for this wonderful dose of entertainment. And uh, the deal, sure enough, the deal, it came time for the deal to be closed, and he asked me the question if I could give him a couple bucks. And, um, you know, the, the embedded idea being sold in all of these contracts is you owe me. You owe me because I've been victimized by society. You owe me because I am desperate. You owe me because you're a Christian. And you owe me or you owe me because I'm entitled in some way. I have just entertained you for a half hour with great stories. And uh, so now... Give me some money. You know, and so when I'm in my elder brother heart, which is hard and cold and selfish, I'm thinking, what am I thinking? You know, I'm thinking, I don't deserve this. You know, you're, you're wasting my time. I'm too important for you, you know. Um, I'm angry. In fact, I'm entitled to be in my office studying instead of out here talking to you. 
you know, and I, I am trying to get you to laugh in a little bit, but, but it's, really, it's really awful because then it hits me like a train that I'm guilty of the very same things I'm thinking, you know, are wrong with him. I'm entitled. I'm victimized. I'm, uh, what else? I'm, I'm angry and so forth. Totally wrong attitude. I like, I remember Gordon quoting one time someone when he said, uh, we are small change in the pocket of God meant to be spent by him frivolously. What do I think, what, what, have I re- you know, what, have, what do I think I have that I haven't received? Right? It's all by grace. Why do I think I'm so, so dang important? I'm not. And so um, we've got to be careful about that elder brother mentality that can creep up in our hearts. You might have it right now by thinking, why is Jim preaching so long? I need to, I need to get going. <laughs> okay, we're almost done. Thank you. The elder brother wouldn't come into the party, would he? He was angry. He felt victimized. He felt entitled to the fattened calf, and instead his brother's getting it. In fact, probably he, he, he felt entitled to more than his brother was getting, this profligate brother. So the challenge is to stay in the love of God, to not be manipulated by subtle contracts, but to not to walk in the love of God that compels us. 2 Corinthians 5 says it well, for the love of God, love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. If we are prodigals who have come home, we must have the heart of the Father who's anxiously looking each moment at the horizon that he might see the prodigal son returning home in order to run and meet him and receive him home again. We have to have a prodigal-friendly heart, amen? And repent of that elder brother mentality. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So I'd like you to just think now for a moment, maybe even close your eyes and as we close, perhaps you are a prodigal who's in the process of returning home. And just over the next little rise, you will see your home, your kingdom, your family, and your father ready to receive you with open arms. Your father with tears streaming down his face, running to meet you and throw you a party. I want to say to you, if you're in that, if you're, the, if you're a prodigal who's limping home, I want to say to you, run. 
Don't delay. Receive Christ today. Repent of your sins. Come home to God ready to serve him forever. He loves you and his great arms of grace are ready to embrace you. Pray with someone here. If you want to receive Christ today, please pull someone aside and pray with them. They'll help you. Maybe you're the older brother right now. Your heart's grown hard and you're angry and feeling cheated. I want to say to you, open your heart again to God and let go of your anger, your defiance, and your sense especially of entitlement. Come into the party and rejoice. Adopt the attitude of heaven and the heart of your Father. Your reward will come, but come into the party. And maybe you're the Father right now. You carry the Father's heart for some prodigals that are near and dear to you. I want to say to you, keep manning your post. Keep praying, scanning the horizon, knowing that the day will come when you will see them making their way home to the Father and also to you. That day will come. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you will apply it through the power of your Holy Spirit in any way that you see fit. We open our hearts to you. We do ask for forgiveness, Lord, for attitudes and ways that our heart has adopted the mentality of the older brother. We pray that we would be a prodigal, friendly church, that we would uh, continue to pray, continue to man our post, and be ready to receive with great joy. We pray for those prodigals that are on our hearts and our minds. We pray for breakthroughs, Lord. We pray for breakthroughs by the power of the living God. And we will give you all the glory and all the praise. We trust you, Lord. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.